Hello there, listeners, and welcome back to A World Without Poetry. As you know, my name is Jack, and today we have a guest with us. And I think for, t- for right now, the best way to go about doing this, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Cindy Rocker, and I teach English at Maysville High School. And Jack has asked me to speak on the subject of A World Without Poetry, and I'm very pleased to do so. All right. So, obviously, I chose you, not only because many people recommend you, and they said you're one of the best English teachers that we have here at Maysville. Oh, so. that's sweet. <laughs> uh, and so the main thing is, while obviously poetry is mainly a language-based thing, I'll span it across multiple things of music and everything like that, but top priority when it comes to poetry is the actual literature and English of it, so. <laughs> okay, I can speak to a world without poetry. I, I think it's an interesting concept because for much of people's lives, they are never without poetry, whether it is a nursery rhyme when they're little or um, a lullaby when they're a baby or they just catch snatches of their mother's voice when they're in the womb. And that's very much itself um, poetry. Somebody the other day, a student asked me the difference between prose and poetry. And poetry is actually just a a lined format uh, way of speaking. And very often you'll see fragments of phrases that constitute poetry. And I think in the womb, that's what you hear your mother say, you hear little snatches of voice. And so I think the very first thing you hear in the womb is poetry. You hear tiny fragments of language, and you're trying to probably make sense of it, even in your little infant brain. It's trying to like, like whip around there, and you're trying to, you're trying to to think what that means. Um, One of the very first things I think of when I think of poetry is the way that Homer starts his Odyssey, which is to say, "Speak memory," and "speak memory" just means that you are speaking from your experience, from your memory. Um, and it's not at all a coincidence that um, Nabokov, the writer, named his memoir Speak Memory. Um, because I think that it's poetic, it's a phrase, it's two words, four syllables. Um, and, and I think it's a command, it's also a command sentence, Speak Memory. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways that's where poetry begins, Speak Memory. Also, William Wordsworth, the poet, tells us that poetry is memory recollected in tranquility, experience recollected in tranquility, where you cannot form a poem until you've experienced something, then you go back, you think about it, and in tranquility, you write it. Not meaning that the writing of itself is tranquil, but that the writing of it um, kind of induces you into a state where you are composing something that is very different from prose, and very different from just your your lived experience, um, but it's words that you are putting on paper to tell, or not just tell, but to transmit your experience of something. So, yeah. poetry, in a way, is a way to record and transmit the memories that we keep into a more tangible object, shall we yes. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's very tangible. Once you have that poem and you can read it and you can ingest it and, and you, know, you get to live the experience again through poetry, but in a different way. You've got a whole different perspective on it because you've written about it. Mm-hmm. So. 
and even for the readers as well, the readers of poetry, it's something for them to either connect with or for something that they can personally enjoy if they've not experienced that themselves, if it's capturing an emotion, for example, along those lines. Yes, actually that is the quote from Wordsworth, it's emotion recollected in tranquility. I couldn't remember the right word. But you're absolutely right on that. And I think too, whenever you write a poem and then you give it to the world, other people can read it. For example, um, um, Five Years at Tintern Abbey by William Wordsworth um, is the experience of him taking his sister to a place he had visited five years before, Tintern Abbey, which was an old church. And when you read that poem, you're with Wordsworth, so you're experiencing that with him, but then you're also experiencing it from your own time period, because it's, the poem's like 200 years old now. And I think that you, you live it in two different ways. You live it with him, and then you live your experience of reading that poem. You're bringing the past to the present. Yes, very much. Very much. Yeah. And so what's some of your favorite poems? I think it's interesting you chose this. What are some of your favorite poems and why? I, well, it, it jumps around a bit. I'd say that for a majority of my life, it was Edgar Allan Poe, mainly just because after... <laughs> mainly just because from... Well, after just, like, the storyline of the poems themselves, but once you know about his own life, it makes those stories even more meaningful. Like, Israfel, for example, not his most popular work by any means, but it combines mythology, a lesser-known mythology at that, and makes it a story of his own, of the fact that it's almost melancholic, and at the same time, it's bittersweet because it talks about Israfel, how he's so prideful of how his music can make anyone just cry, and just how beautiful his music is. And in the final stanza, Poe goes off and says, his music could be, I don't even know, I, mm, I can't remember the poem. It's one of my favorite, I can't remember how exactly it goes. <laughs> But he basically says that he could make something so much better just from his own experience because he actually lived a life, whereas Israfil was born an angel and he had always lived a perfect life. Yes. Yeah, there's something to be said for lived experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I do you think poetry grows out of great pain sometimes? Most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that without pain, without sorrow, without... With imperfection, there is poetry, I'd say. And poetry is where we find the perfection in imperfection. That's why we make it in such this rhythmic... with verses, and I can't even finish my own sentence. <laughs> no, I, no, I think you're right there. I, I think that's... I think a lot of people respond to poetry. If you ask people if they like poetry, a lot of times they'll back off and they'll say, no, I didn't like English. But if you talk to them, you find out that they like something in music or they like a particular line from a film Mm -hmm. that becomes kind of a poetry to them. And it almost becomes a mantra that they repeat to themselves over and over. And I think any, any phrase that you say to yourself over and over becomes some kind of poetry for you. And if you want to talk about different poets that we like, I'm glad you mentioned Poe. That was that was interesting. Uh, Mary Oliver just passed away, and she was a poet who was dinged sometimes for being very simplistic. She wrote about nature primarily, but I think in her simplicity, she captured a lot of what was beautiful about nature. And um, I, I think that that's one poet that I really like. Um, another poet that I like is um, T.S. Eliot. He wrote the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Um, and his line at the end where it says, um, uh, till human voices wake us and we drown, um, I think is, uh, is one of the most enigmatic endings of, of, of any poem. And it's two of his most famous lines. 
um, I think human voices wake you when you no longer listen to your inner voice. And if you quit listening to your inner voice, and poetry to me is very much an inner voice for a lot of people. When you when you read poetry and you internalize it, it becomes part of you, it becomes part of your psyche. And the human voices, sometimes the voices that distract and, and drown out when we're trying to listen to ourselves uh, is what Elliot was talking about. I, I think it's it's a beautiful poem. I know it's overread in every English class, but when, when I feel very melancholy, I like to go back to it because I think there's something very beautiful about it. Um, I actually had a student take those last lines and put them on a little, she put them in a painting and gave it to me one year at the end of the year. It was, it's pretty cool. Is it hidden somewhere in all those objects in the room? <laughs> I took it home. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I took it down uh, last week actually and took it home. Hmm. So, um, some other poetry that is interesting, I think that the idea of a poetry slam where um, people get up and do some performance with their poetry is like very intriguing. Like a what? Like a moth, for example. Is it a moth? I didn't know they called it that. Well, I, that's probably like a bad example, because with the moth, that's more, not always, but it's oftentimes a memoir where they go up and talk from an experience in their lives. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 I was thinking of something completely different. Okay, okay. yeah. I was going to say, usually a poetry slam is where you go up and, and you say your poem, and um, you, you do a little bit of performance art when you're up there. You kind of perform it, and people can respond to it. Um, I just think those are kind of interesting. A lot of times they're they're a little more freeform um, than most poetry. Although that doesn't mean the poet hasn't worked on them quite a bit. But I think they're fun to, to think about. It's more along the lines of, say, jazz, for example. Mm-hmm. Very jazz, much. Yes. yes, very much. Cool. I'd say if we're going to... We keep on returning to this, but it's, it is a good topic to work on. These uh, different poets we have... He's not a major name. I've never heard of him being discussed in an educational setting. And honestly, I've not heard of him outside of much. I've just found him one day. Jack London. Oh, Jack London. He's the writer who wrote Call of the Wild. God. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. Now I've... I've, (laughs) Go ahead and look for his name. Yes, I know his name. I have it favorited somewhere. Gosh dang it. Jack Grodin. That's it. Jack Grodin. He's from Australia. Cool. Is he a cowboy poem? Uh, not exactly, per se. Okay. I, sorry for the listeners back there. I had to look up <laughs> some things on my phone. I know there's like a bunch of clicking. I learned that out the hard way the first time. It's, yeah, it's not that big of a deal, but... <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of his poems, they play with these central themes of life, and he does a lot of analogies. Murphyisms, if you would. <laughs> Uh, probably going to be the next guest star after you. <laughs> uh, and what are some of these Murphyisms that, that are in this, oh, po- in this poet's work? Probably like one of my favorite works he's ever done. I say I like a lot, don't I? But that's beside the point. You're good. There's one of his poems that he simply called Chess. And he compared... I'm not quite sure if he's compared... I kind of hope it's comparing itself to modern day life. He's comparing life to the game of chess, to the idea of there's the upper class, those of the kings and queens who they barely ever do anything in the game. They, at most, I mean, the king himself, he moves once, if ever. And then you have the pawns, the lower the lower class of them all, who they're being used all the time. They have to die. They have to do it basically everything for everyone. And then you have roughly the middle class, the rooks, the bishops, all of those sort who have to they have useful things, 
and it's sort of along the lines of the middle classes of what their professions are, of the fact that they have there's such the broad spectrum of middle class professions, whereas the upper class and lower class, there's you barely hear about all of them. There's maybe at most like you have lawyer, doctor, those sorts of things, and then in the middle there's poet, of course, <laughs> musician, artist, teacher, uh-huh. such and so forth, and just yeah. with that poem it expanded and all that. It was such a meaningful thing, I think. And it was probably just when I found it in my life, at that time in my life, it was more meaningful. But I can still go back there and revisit it. And so it just... I'd say going back and forth, it has a different meaning each time, which is what poetry is. That's what good poetry is. Good poetry will have... It'll have, I think, you thinking of a different perspective every time you read it. Bad poetry doesn't do that. <laughs> but we're not going to make judgment. No, we're not going to make any evaluations on poetry right now. Um, you talked about a world without poetry. I don't think that it's possible um, to have a world without poetry because there's something called found poetry, which yeah. you probably you know used in classes, where a snatch of something off of a newspaper line, um, a headline, can be poetry, where something random that someone says becomes a line of poetry. Actually, there's um, a story about one of the songs that came out of Motown, um, I Second That Emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Smokey Robinson wrote that song, and he said that he was um, in a line somewhere, and people were talking, they were waiting for something, and Mm -hmm. then he heard somebody say, I second that emotion, when the man meant to say, I second that motion. And Smokey was like, oh my goodness, I second that emotion. And that became you know, a great song out of Motown. And um, music and poetry is so intertwined, um, too, that it's hard to have one without the other. And so many of the song lyrics that I like uh, can be taken as poetry by themselves. Most of the songwriters that I like have had their lyrics published in poetry. For instance, Joni Mitchell, um, who you may not be familiar with from the 1960s, folk singer. If I heard him, I probably would, but it's just more along the lines that if I did say that I didn't know him, my mom would come bursting in here, what? You don't know him? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Joni Mitchell's a great folk singer. She had a lot of different lines. Um, I remember there's one of her songs called The Last Time I Saw Richard, um, and the first line goes, The last time I saw Richard was in Detroit of 68, he told me, all romantics meet the same fate someday. And I just, I, mean, I was about 13 when I first heard that song. And I thought that first line was just so evocative, even without the music. And there's not a lot of music with it. And I think if you're a good singer songwriter, or a good songwriter, you are able to take lyrics that can live on their own. Yeah. And, and I like that one quite a bit. I'm, I'm terrible when it comes to names of singers, just names in general. <laughs> but. <laughs> During my, shall we say, the country teaching music, country music teaching, shall we say, because my, you know, obviously my dad taught to me like the classical, all that sort of stuff. My mom's, whenever we went on road trips with her, Statler Brothers, all of those. Oh, yeah. I forget what it was called. It was, I was recently introduced to it because um, my brother in law, he's a trucker. Uh-huh. It was during Christmas, she said, Have you ever heard this song before, Tony? And she made such a big deal about it because it was actually a really good song I forget how it was it had like a real like I wouldn't say southern drawl but there was a drawl behind it with real slow like it was some kid they had just lost their father and he the father apparently been a trucker and so for Christmas they, like, they all came into town because he would always go onto the radio and like message in so for Christmas they call, like, all came in and took the boy around and finally <laughs> 
like as the final part, the mother came on and just, I don't know, thank all of you who came that day. My son had been happy in over five years since my father. It was, it was just, it was poetry. And all it was was just add like a little bit of guitar, a little bit of banjo. Just, actually, he was just, it was just a story. It was poetry. Uh-huh. And all it was, he didn't even sing, no, no singing. There was nothing like that. It was just a pure, unfiltered words. Wow. That's cool. I'd like to hear that sometime. I, I'll have, you'll have to ask her. She'll know She'll know anything. She'll know exactly comes. what it is. That's, um, uh, yeah, getting back to, to musicians and people we like and music <laughs> and words. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Um, I have heard him speak on the different rhymes and interior rhymes, assonance that he has in his lyrics. And I listen to those lyrics, and I listen to the songs over and over, but I'm listening primarily to the words and how he takes those internal rhymes um, and how he takes... The, the syllables and tries to fit them to be the best possible sounding line that still makes sense. That's, that's hard. I mean, poetry to me is one of the most taxing things you can do. I took a poetry workshop at Kenyon College for adults and you would see people literally bump into things as they were walking around all day on campus because every night your assignment was to write a poem and there were some specific things that had to be like maybe eight lines. You might have to have like seven syllables per line or something. Um, and my writing teacher was um, Carl Phillips, who is, I think it was Poet Laureate one year. Great poet, he teaches at the University of uh, St. Louis, Washington. And you would see people walk around and bump into things all day as they were trying to write their poetry in their head. They were trying different rhyme schemes out. It's taxing and it's, it's wonderful work. It's, it's frustrating. So have you written some poetry? I've written more along the lines of shorter things, shall we say. Mm-hmm. There was some haiku. Tonka, less popular form, the, uh, in a way, it was the haiku before haiku. Yes, yeah. I think the one thing they say is, like, back then it was more for letters and stuff. Nowadays, if you were the traditional poet, whereas, you know, nowadays poetry's evolved over and over again. Mm -hmm. But once they had, like, the major different types of Japanese poetry, they had it so that Haiku was standard everywhere. You, they even had it for messages like government official things. <laughs> but probably my favorite thing was Tonka because of the fact that it kind of became what's the word I'm trying to look for? Obsolete almost. Mm-hmm. Since of this new introduction, it was used more for love poems and not exactly good love poems. More for Lustful love. Lustful love. <laughs> you might refresh our listeners on what Tonka, oh. uh, what form does Tonka take? It's, you take haiku, the 575 syllable count, and then you add on two additional lines of seven syllables each, allowing for a total of 31 syllables. The idea was that this way you could have more elaboration, since many people thought with haiku, once both became a thing, you couldn't do much. And Tonka was haiku before haiku existed, and some people thought, oh, I don't need those extra two lines, and cut them off, and then they thought, oh, this works still. But it's just, it's up for interpretation, I'd say. Uh, I did try couplets every now and then. Those were, (laughs) it was mainly just because I had to try and get the rhyme, and so it took the enjoyment out of it, almost. Mm -hmm. That's why I enjoyed the ones such as haiku that I didn't have to try and get the rhyme. Obviously, poetry doesn't have to rhyme. I feel like I need some sort of rhythm to it, and that might just be because of my upbringing of my father. Seven and a half years of music. 
that he probably just that idea of it has to be a rhythm was in bed in my head. Mm-hmm. Rhythm at the not at the expense of rhyme. Exactly. Yeah. I think probably like the best thing I could think of. We keep on going back to music, and I'm trying to. I should probably try and keep this to English and language since I'm going to have. Okay. Mer- <laughs> okay, we'll stick to English. Yeah, my, it's it's not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong, but well, that's why I mentioned um, uh, Hamilton because it seems to me whenever I hear Manuel Miranda talk about the writing of the songs, the lyrics seem to come for him before the music. Yes, which is interesting because he does love music so much. I think probably like this was. He said that it was a uh, a shout out, if you would, to Jesus Christ Superstar. Another. Yes. It's up there in one of the greatest musicals of all time. I forget which song it is that he had in there, but he compared... I don't even know the titles of the songs. Good God, I... This is going great. <laughs> oh, Sometimes but... notes are good. <laughs> are you talking about the Hamilton song that's like the Jesus Christ Superstar song? Yes. Okay, yeah, I've heard him speak about I that, and like... I'm not sure which song it is. There's a... It's a... I think it's, it's Meet Me Inside, beginning part of that in Hamilton, and in Jesus Christ Superstar, it's when Jesus is on it. Well, Jesus is always on his own in that musical. Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, it's sad. It's one of those. Th- it's uh, dum, 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 it's when the lepers and all them they want something from Jesus. It was sort of a shout out, if you would, to that musical and all the work it has done. Cause seven, eight, for those non-music theory people out there is one of the hardest <laughs> time signatures out of all music. And so for him to actually try and put something into that format, I mean, sure it was for that, but could also have been in an artist's interpretation mm-hmm. as a show of this idea of like the stressed, very I mean, it's probably the most rhythmic thing because you have to keep that the entire time. If you break it once, it's, the entire thing crumbles. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for all time signatures, sure, but that one, you can jump back in if it's 4-4 because that's standard. I know that for if there's anyone that does not know music theory, this is probably the worst conversation ever for you. I know a little <laughs> tiny bit about it. Yeah. Just the math. I, just, I, I do know 7-8's a difficult I just feel bad for the listeners. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, I'd say, maybe, I'll be generous, 50%. 4-4-3-4. <laughs> four, four, four. Mm-hmm. They hear 7 eighths is a very different very very different yeah yeah so do you like do you prefer words or music because i feel like you go kind of like from one to the other i'd say oh that's a now if you had to write a musical and you had to pick one would you be going with to be the wordsmith or would you want to be the i already know what the storyline would be i've actually well spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) i'm not writing a musical i'm writing a play and okay plays are Musicals without music. So, actually, musicals are plays without music. Yes. So, I mean, sure, you know, the plays with music. Yeah, hey, that, I'm not that's sure. Funny. The fundamental thing here is, I think of musicals as plays with music. Plays with music. I never think of plays as without music. I'd say it depends on the actor. Okay. Because you know, if you have the most, <laughs> you could have the most dramatic person in the room being in a musical, and I think give like that heart and soul into it. And musicals, like, you know, they're everywhere, everywhere, and you hear about, like, how great the acting is. If a play is done and the actors have that sort of repertoire, 
it's basically just them, except they're just not singing. And if they can still channel that emotion from what they sing into their words, it could not be, it could be just as good, if not better. Cool. And so, like, this thing I'm working, I'm not going to spill anything like that, because if, depending on how it turns out, we're not going to spoil it. <laughs> you know, but, you might want to consider getting a co-writer, too, because sometimes I, that helps you finish. I'm trying to look into getting an editor, editor Elizabeth, a uh, friend who helps with writing for me. Yeah, we both know her. Yeah. <laughs> She, uh, I'm sharing it with her because she, she's a major help with that sort of thing. That she, would be fabulous. Degree in creative writing, literature, not creative, creative writing. I cannot talk now. <laughs> uh, but with that, even though I'm writing it as a play, I can easily see certain things. And I'd say, getting back to your question of if I prioritize music over the lyrics, the lyrics for the more... If the song is adding things to the story, because there's obviously some songs and musicals where it barely brings anything to the story plot. They might bring anything like, oh, he's married, and that's all you learn from <laughs> a five-minute song. <laughs> I think that, oh, what song? Was, oh, it's History of Wrong Guys from Kinky Boots. She's, have you seen that musical? I have not, no. I would like to. It's beautiful. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and the idea is that the main character, I won't even spoil any of that. They just, they meet someone and they don't want to, there's so many songs like that, like in, especially in musical theater, of just this idea of, there's this guy, I want to be with him, but in the past there's always been something that goes wrong. Is it me? Is it someone else? It's not sure. She has this entire thing in the song where she's listening up all these different things of that happened to her. And I'll even give this a little bit of spoiler because it's, it's for comical things. I mean, she's talking about, like, you know... Like, it's like... Chap- she's, like, going through the chapters of her history of wrong guys. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's great. And so, finally, in the end, she finds out, you know, like... Oh, no. I always knew it. She'd be- he'd be with someone because this girl comes in. It's her... It's his cousin. And so she's like, yes! <laughs> she finds... She- it's a great song. I can't even... I'm trying to talk, and the song's going through my head at the same time, so my brain's trying to go into that rhythm of the song, but I can't, because then it would be something else entirely. This is a podcast. This is not a (laughs) sing-along. But if you do want to look at History of Wrong Guys, it's... I'd say it's a good song. It's... Write that down. I'm going to look that one up. (laughs) Uh, But it has the most storytelling, I'd say, but all you really learn from it aside from her backstory is that she can go after the guy. That's all you learn. <laughs> Waitress, a relatively new one made by Sarah Bareilles. All you there's another similar song. It's oh god, it's it's almost done like a ragtime almost. Interesting. Not exactly. Really? It's like a like like a little jazz sort of thing. I don't know how to really describe I have to it. I hear that. It's probably the one that closely sounds like Broadway music out of the entire show. One of the things you said, um, one of the weirdest uh, songs out of um, Jesus Christ Superstar is I Don't Know How to Love Him, where Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. was speaking about her love for, for Christ. And I remember when I was a teenager, um, my mother said, that song is a love song about Jesus. And I said, I didn't know that. I just thought it was a, a romantic song. And it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that still to me is, and I think because I was young when I heard it, that's still one of the most beautiful Broadway songs I've ever heard. 
um, and the interpretation of it makes a big difference. I heard the Helen Reddy version, but I know there were other people that um, sang it in the original Broadway musical. So, just to sorry. That's like go ahead. <laughs> uh, just to say because we 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 have time, but just so we can get back on yeah. track since we yes. do have brought you in for England. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Fine. You're good. I know. I'm just. Ooh. This is fun. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Exactly. You did say all that while ago of the idea that this world would never exist because you found poetry. We cannot live. It's to be human is to be air, and since this idea of poetry is finding perfection in imperfection, poetry is human, and so that was the main conversation of yes, a world without poetry. It seems impossible, but to think of it being possible, what does that have to mean for society as a whole? That's what I'm. That was the main idea of this podcast. I'm going to have some other people bring in here, some possibly psychologists, people who focus more on that of how that sort of thing. Well, you can legislate um, language all you want, but it won't stick because yeah. people have tried to legislate language into being. They've tried to establish languages as this national or state language. You, you can't legislate language. You can also, um, you cannot stop a language from growing. Latin is a dead language, and it's going to stay that way. No, yeah. one, no one speaks it. But if a language is spoken, um, you are never going to be able to corral it, and w- which I think is a beautiful thing. And you can have, uh, you can incarcerate people, you can put people in jail for um, saying something in a language that somebody doesn't consider right, or censor, you can censor what you want. Um, just just how a little plant will grow through a crack in the sidewalk. Language will always out, and poetry will always out because there's always somebody. For all the people that maybe don't love it or don't think they love it, somebody will always find a way to, to write poetry, even if they don't know what they're writing. Somebody had to start writing poetry. There was a caveman somewhere who, instead of drawing uh, like a spear with an animal, somebody started writing. Well, that would be the first poetry, the spear at the animal. And then eventually it grew into something else. I had a good time killing that animal. And it went to, I Aesop. felt sad about killing that animal. And eventually, by the time you had language, which I, I would remorse. love to find whoever had the first, who decided on the first alphabet or the first language. That would be something. <laughs> that would be something. Someday somebody will find oh. it. Um, eventually somebody probably wrote a fragment of phrase that was poetic and somebody added on to it. I felt remorse for killing that animal. <laughs> yeah, I felt but, remorse. Yeah. For and then finally feeling that bitter sweet feeling. Yes, my heart turned to stone when I threw the spear. <laughs> and as it sank down into the soft ground, I felt the something, some horrible signs. But <laughs> this is slightly off topic, but since we're building off this entire idea of language, you know about Duolingo. About what? It's a, it's an app, a free app you can learn another language. Oh, I have okay. heard of this, yes. 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 And yes. so there's a bunch of different languages. You know, there's French, Spanish. Basque. Yes. Actually, I'm not sure about that one. I know they have no, Romanian. Basque is a language. I know, but they I know they have Romanian, <laughs> Ukrainian, all those yeah. Anians. Right, yeah. Yeah. They even have Navajo, which I was... Uh, yes, yes, yes. When I was uh, in graduate school in uh, Santa Fe, they were trying to take Navajo out of the schools and then another uh, faction of the populace was trying to keep Navajo in the school so the kids would not lose their, their native uh, culture. But building off this entire thing, you said, like, yeah. it's only a dead language if no one speaks it. They have fantasy languages in there. Yes. Like languages from Game of Thrones. And, and, and Middle-earth. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I, just the fact that, I mean, I get it from the fact that, ooh, not Tolkien, 
guy who wrote Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, I know his name. Yeah. I can't think of it right now. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my English teacher would hate me so much, Mrs. Stoffway. <laughs> oh. I can't think of I know. I just saw it last night, too. Yeah. On something. I'll look it up. Go ahead and keep going. While okay. I'll look it up. But just the fact that, yes, fictional people speak this language. But the fact that, I mean, sure, it might become this obsession that we want to learn this language along the lines. The fact that we want to learn a language that has never existed before, that's only existed in the mind of some man creating an entire world. It just, it just sparked this entire thing when you said dead language, this idea that we still have this interest in things not familiar to us when we're building off this entirety of memories and poet. Yes, just to bring that full circle. But to, um, George R.R. R. Martin. That's it. I knew it was a double initial somewhere. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. Oh, yeah, spoiler alert to all the listeners out there. I'm still in high school. Sorry if that ruins that for you. Now that... <laughs> oh. Oh, but to just wrap this up, mm-hmm. you did say that even though language would always exist, no matter what, because we always create it, as with the cavemen and stuff like that, I just feel like, you know, especially with figurative language specifically, because that is where much of poetry has stemmed from. Obviously, poetry does not need figurative language. As you said, there is the mother talking to her child in the womb. There is talking to the child who is hurt after they scrape their knee on the bike. All those sorts of things, keeping those fragments of sentences. But half of those would not be so sentimental without figurative language. And so... My hypothesis for this, even though science, I feel like, does not go at all with poetry. Uh, actually, poetry and math are, are pretty much related. Fair enough. <laughs> they are, yeah. It, the metrics of poetry lend themselves to math. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, Syl- syllabication makes a huge difference in poetry and the meter and the rhyme. Oh, yeah. If, if you have to write poetry, and I was taught poetry by a Latin teacher, Carl Phillips, once again. <laughs> uh, at Kenyon, he was our poetry teacher. Um, to have a Latin teacher teach you poetry was great because you learned how much math does make a difference and syllabication and the counting of syllables and the stress of syllables. Yeah. That's the heart of poetry. And a lot of people don't know that because you get into the little technical nitty-gritty of it. It makes an enormous difference in where you put a stress and where you put a syllable. I considered that before, yeah. Mm-hmm. But just the idea of... I mean, that, that the idea, my hypothesis, I suppose, for, before starting this project, of, if there was a world without poetry, that there would have to be no figurative language, that people would have to always be speaking in, I believe it's authoritative, there's another word for it, when the sentence structure, there's like no purple prose in it at all. Technical writing. That sort of thing, it's just, I feel like that, in that sort of world, these people, they go about speaking, everything is very manual, very robotic, if you would. Because I, f- I feel like that's the only way for there to be a world without poetry. Well, it makes you wonder why people search for figurative language, too, because, honestly, we could just go around talking in text-speak, like technical writing-speak, where you have no elaboration and and you don't have figurative language. That something is like something else, which is you know, a, a simile. And Why do people do that? Why did our brain search for that? It does make you wonder. Yeah. Why, why do we need it? We don't need poetry, but we apparently have some use for it because it, it exists. Because we can't explain what isn't there. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's... <laughs> that's a good way to say it. <laughs> I'm 
trying to think. There was... Oh, God, what was there? That was the main thing I wanted to... Reason why I wanted to do this, because... You always hear, I mean, even... Whether they're an adolescent, an adult, an elder, no matter what... Oh, last millennia, oh... It's raining cats and dogs. They use figurative language, no matter who they are. Even if they're the most straight-spined person on the earth. <laughs> even then, straight-spine has nothing to do with the way they talked. <laughs> because we have this feeling, this idea that we have to elaborate in a certain way. And the, the idea to elaborate, the only way that we can elaborate, is in this almost nonsensical, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about this nonsensical pattern of words. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to do this project. I wanted to make this podcast, if you would. Idioms idioms are kind of poetry, and they differ from language to language. And one does wonder about why why did we ever invent idioms. It's raining cats and dogs. That makes no sense. It makes no literal sense. Mm -hmm. Now, I I like the idea of your podcast, (laughs) and I I think we've covered a lot of different weird ground here. Yeah. I would... Just before we finish, if we're going to speak of idioms, there's one that I just find interesting. Studying French. Yes. Obviously, I am nowhere close to being a scholar. Nowhere near. <laughs> but there is one thing I find interesting. In English, we say, I missed you. In French, they say, you are missing from me. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love that. You are missing from me. That's beautiful. It is. And they have like, and they say that every day. There's all these little lines they say every day that they take for granted. And us English people, we look at that and we think that's the most beautiful thing on earth. And they're just sitting there drinking <laughs> their Pinot Noir and they're eating their brie, and they just think that's everyday life. <laughs> Stupid American. <laughs> at least I'm not a constant pee. <laughs> I like that. Oh my goodness. But thank you. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy the idea of your project, and I hope to hear some of these other ones. I think you can edit this too, can't you? Yes, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You can edit to make it coherent, or as coherent as it's going to get. I think I even said this in the last, it was just an introduction in the last one. But what I said is that, in my opinion, the most powerful thing is the voice. And so, while there are all those little slip-ups that we had there, to slip up is to be human, even though that's not the proper way. That is a paraphrase, and we'll say that. <laughs> to err is human, to forgive divine. Oh, I know who said that. I can't think of is it. That's not Dante. It... I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> you, you, you and I together, we, we, we know what we're talking about. We just don't know the names. Yeah. That's what it is. We, we just have to study this and we'll just bring an entire list of names and then we'll just look up like, oh yeah. I think for some podcasts people use notes. <laughs> <laughs> that might be something you want to think about. Oh, I'm, just, oh. I'm just having some fun here. Yeah. I'm going to look up who. I don't know names anymore. <laughs> who said that? I hear about, I remember, they always like, no, oh, to quote, da da da. To forgive. Alexander Pope. That makes more sense. Yeah. It makes sense he for it to be a Pope. The, the essay, the saying was from the essay on criticism, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. it. Well, well, thank you very much. I'm glad you. I got to participate in your project. 
I mean, I'd love to hear your dad's um, podcast. I'd oh, that one might be a bit more... There might be a lot more laughing than there is now. And that's saying something. <laughs> <Yikes>. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you again for your time. All right. Well, thank you very much. And, and good luck on your project. Thank you. Okay. And to conclude, this has been A World Without Poetry. I'm Jack, signing off. <laughs>